Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. So, hey crew, new year, new decade. Let's have some new Pure Dog Talk promos while we're at it, shall we? Alright. Our patrons group continues to grow and thrive. It's like the NPR of dogdom. It's so cool. And Pure Dog Talk offers you, my loyal listeners, an opportunity to get in on the fun. Pure Dog Talk patrons are invited to join a closed Facebook chat group just for you. And I promise you, no drama mamas, no keyboard warriors, just fabulous, supportive, pure dog talk fans. That's it. Each month, I pick a photo submitted by our patrons group to be the cover image on the Facebook page. You guys have seen it. And anybody with a quick question gets immediate feedback from moi personally, as well as input from the array of patron group members. Pretty fun. The patrons group also gets first dibs on podcast topic suggestions. So if you have something you want to hear about, that's a good way to do it. And to celebrate the new year, I'm adding a whole new technological challenge to my life. Oh my God. I will be hosting Facebook live discussions for patrons only on the final Monday of each month from 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time zone. Y'all join us from wherever you are, but that's when they'll be. Just a few of our planned topics of conversation include advertising on a shoestring budget. (laughs) Yeah, trust me, we can talk about that. Campaigning a special just for runner handlers. Problem solving the stack. Tricks of the trade for grooming. Like, what products do I like or anybody else like? Open mic, Q&As, all that kind of stuff. What you guys need to know is that the generosity of Pure Dog Talk's patrons is literally what keeps the MP3s running here. The money is set aside exclusively for overhead and operational expenses. That's it. Now, I'm incredibly grateful to our corporate sponsors. You have no idea. They have the dedication to purebred dogs and the resources to ensure that Pure Dog Talk remains a powerful voice for purebred dogs. That you guys, y'all believed in this mission and you've supported it from the beginning. You are the heart and soul of my crusade to provide all purebred dog lovers a constantly growing, challenging treasure trove of knowledge in a 21st century format. Like a So... Just click the Be My Patron on Podbean button on the website. It's quick, it's easy, it's secure. And I hope to see all of you on the next Facebook Live chat. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I have a super exciting panel discussion on breeding dogs, preservation breeding And I'm talking to three amazing dog breeders. It happens that they are all breeders of toy dogs, which just kind of wound up that way. And they're all from Canada. So ah, 
It was an accident. <laughs> but I want to absolutely welcome Amanda Kelly back. She's been on the show before. Wendy Paquette back. She's also been on the show before. And welcome Chris Hertz, her first time here on the show. And our topic today is breeding with an emphasis on planning your family of dogs, right? This idea that your line of dogs is a family of dogs. And the question is, is consistency of style more important than consistency of health and or quality? And that's kind of a big juggling act, right? For all of us. How do you get to your desired goals? All of that kind of stuff. So I am thrilled. This is going to be so interesting and I am really excited to hear from you guys. So we're going to do a really quick introduction from everybody. Wendy, you've been on before, but remind listeners about yourself, please. Hi, I have been a breeder of Shih Tzu for 50 years now in Canada and have shown dogs around the world. Plus, I'm an all-breed judge. Absolutely fabulous. Amanda? I have been breeding Toy Manchester Terriers also in Canada since I was a kid. So I guess probably 30 or 35 years now, if mm -hmm. we can count when you're an unconscious <laughs> in, child. In <laughs> right. <laughs> and also have had the opportunity to show our dogs in shows around the world, which is always exciting. Very, very cool. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Tell us about yourself. Thank you, Laura, for inviting me. I am Chris Hartz, one half of Crescendo Pomeranians, based here in Nova Scotia, Canada. This year will be our 50th year breeding. I think Wendy and I have that in common as well. Wow. So thanks so much for having me. This is wonderful. What an enormous brain trust of knowledge. So this is very exciting. So we are going to start with the basic question. So we'll start with this. When you're planning your family of dogs, consistency of style versus type, because type is what makes your breed what it is, consistency of style within your breed, so cookie cutter dogs, is that more important or are you aiming for the consistency of health and overall quality and less concerned about looking like they came out of an assembly line? Wendy? Okay. Coming from a background of Shih Tzu that were only recognized in the United States in 1969, I believe it was, I didn't have much choice when I first started my breeding program. Living in Northern Ontario, the only way I could buy a female was to import two from England because mm. they were just not available. Luckily, I came across Luke Boulot in Montreal, who was showing English imported dogs at the time. So I was able to take my English import and breed it to one of Luke's dogs. But that left me sort of in a quandary because I had nowhere else to go after that. So I basically started out breeding type to type. Being the novice, not owning a dog before, the how to raise and train a Shih Tzu was my go-to book. Wow. So with Garrett Lambert's advice and Luke's <laughs> advice, they led me in the right direction. So I was able to quickly get to a point where I knew what to expect and what to look for. Type at that point wasn't really set yet in America. And the type in England was much different than what we were used to seeing here. So consistency of type was, yes, a goal. But health and welfare, to me, is a major factor. Because if you don't have health and welfare, you don't have quality and type either. So it was a long haul from 1970 to 1990 where I feel that I really established myself. But 
I have done inbreeding, outcrossing, line breeding, and I've done it all throughout the years. It's easier to do stuff like that if you have a quantity of dogs and help. So there was a point where I had up to 50 Shih Tzu, so I could pick and choose what direction I wanted to take each line. Wow. And I had choices because I was traveling, so I could pick up on different lines and sort of, I would have to say, experiment with them at the time to know what they were going to give me. But now that I've gotten to the point in my career that I am, I'm down to like less than 10 dogs. And now I can really concentrate on type, consistency, but my health and welfare should already be in place. And if it's not, then I have a problem. I love that. So Wendy, you're saying you started from the place of health and welfare and came and narrowed down to type. Right. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. I think it's very similar to what I've done. So Amanda, let's hear from you on this one. Well, this is such a complicated topic because as Wendy said, it really, I think, depends on where your breed is at. And every breed is going to be unique in how you approach setting up your own breeding program and also thinking about management of the population as a whole. So there's a lot of things that come into play in that respect. So whether it's a newer breed or an older breed, when the stud books closed, you know, how long ago that was and how much genetic material you have to work with, considering that, you know, really as breeders, when we talk about getting consistency and cultivating aspects of breed type or breed style, we're often talking about eliminating genetic material in order to concentrate the genes so that we can get the head that we like or the coat that we like. We're eliminating the genes for the other things. There's also an issue of how popular they are and how many are being bred. So I pulled some statistics for my breed. And, you know, in 2017, we registered 170 dogs in the United States. And that's standard and toy Manchester Terriers combined. So we're talking about 111 dogs were bred that year, dogs and bitches combined. So we're not talking about maybe the same approaches working if you're talking about, say, you know, poodles or Dobermans or French Bulldogs versus very small breeds where we have to not only think about what we want in our own breeding program, but also what is the best choices to make in order to cultivate the things that we think our breed needs now or may need in the future. To preserve it for the future. Right. Yeah. So one of the examples that comes to mind that always worries me because we've always bred on a a relatively small basis. You know, we never really had more than two litters a year, often just one. So I've always said that if the Manchester breed depended on us to survive, it was truly doomed. (laughs) Um, it's, It's very much a group effort. But whenever we make choices about what we are or are not going to breed or or how we're going to approach it, we have to think or be aware of as much what we are cultivating that we can see and what we're cultivating that we can't see. So where Wendy was talking about establishing health early on and then breeding down from there, often what we find is that when breeds get really, really small, as that gene pool gets smaller and smaller and more concentrated, then problems that no one knew even existed start to appear. And that is a really hard thing to deal with kind of on the other end of that. Right. I think that's a super valid point talking about, I will never forget the turn of phrase that Betty Ann used in regards to Dandy Denmonts, that it's not a gene pool, it's a gene puddle. (laughs) Hang tight, guys. 
got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. All right, crew. Embark is really, really committed to providing a resource for responsible breeders and purebred dog enthusiasts. And we know these are tough times. And to help serve breeders right now, when we need it, starting in April, Embark is going to reduce its prices significantly through a series of sales and programs to help make the DNA testing even more accessible for everybody. So stop by, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders, or hop on to their Embark for Breeders Facebook page and take a look at what they have on offer. As always, Embark's leading DNA test kits provide a comprehensive assessment of your dog's genetic health, genetic diversity, and physical traits. And I can tell you, I just got back the two Embark tests that I had done on my own dogs, and it was so cool, and I spent like half the day clicking through all the fun stuff. So stop by the Pure Dog Talk website and click the Embark logo on the homepage and take a look at what they have on offer. And I think that that is critical. I'm really curious to hear from Chris because I think Pomeranian's an older breed, probably numerically larger breed. Yes, Chris? Very, very interested to hear from you on this specific topic. I'm probably at the other end of the spectrum from Amanda because Poms have existed with the same standard out of England for more than 100 years. So while the breed itself has changed, the standard has not. Now, America has taken the standard and completely changed it several times. In fact, they've taken a short back dog and now require it to be a square dog because they felt they'd gone too far in the other direction. Mm -hmm. But when you do things like that, you do affect the breed. When you change your blueprint, then you are in effect changing the breed. You are asking the breed to be something else. That's a big ask in some breeds, but in palms, there are many, many types, styles, however you want to group them. When we first started in palms, my husband came to the first national with me and he looked around at the dogs and he said, and this is not a slander at any breed, but he said, Chris, you will dominate this breed because these are people who have bred dogs the same way for almost a hundred years. We had hackney-gated fine-boned, foxy-faced, big-eared, long-backed dogs for a long time. And we knew there were pockets of good quality dogs. But being able to express what you see into an actual dog was the challenge for us. Not to find the dogs, not to get the people, but to actually make the dogs into what we had seen pieces of, but what we felt the breed could be. When I first started, people would say to me, it really is a query to me, how should a paw move? 
And I was flabbergasted by that because the palm is a spitz. If you can see a Kazan, a Samoyed, a Siberian, they're just small versions. They don't move any differently, but for some reason, because they're in the toy group, they're considered a breed that doesn't have to have good shoulders, have good rears. They just have to be fluffy and cute. And we really, <laughs> our whole goal was to have the breed be taken seriously. So Chris, I am fascinated then taking that and now I'm going to take it and have you answer this and we'll work our way backwards. So you started with a pretty established gene pool that was not of really the standard quality that you personally as a breeder wanted to aspire to. And so you have achieved that, (laughs) I'm saying, anyone who's seen your dogs. So how, what process specifically, I mean, you could find the dogs. How did you just do father-daughter? Did you do brother So I mean, how did you establish that type that you wanted to carry forward? I think we did several things wrong in that we could get a good dog, but we couldn't get good bitches. It was like in Pomeranians, if it had four legs and a vagina, it was a brew bitch. (laughs) But we were astounded that people in Palms bred anything to a good dog. And the consistency just wasn't there. So we felt like we had seen several dogs that we loved, we just adored, but there was no consistency because at home they had 12, 20, 30, 40 bitches of all shapes and sizes, and they just bred them to these dogs. And so the consistency just didn't exist. And so that was for us a major I sometimes get upset when I put a dog on the table and somebody who I maybe know looks at me and says, another cookie cutter. And it drives me crazy because I think of how many disappointments, how many hurdles we had to cross. To get to that point. Our cookie cutter. Right. And so where did you start? You started with a foundation bitch of the style you preferred. Is that what you started with? No. Of the bloodline of the style we preferred. Okay. Okay. Simply because that kennel was in Texas and I was 18 years old and I had no idea how to get that, but I eventually made enough connections and talked to enough people. But I was lucky enough that instead of a diamond, my husband gave me a dog as an engagement present. (laughs) And that dog was everything we wanted. And he wasn't perfect, but he was where we felt the breed needed to go. He had beautiful shoulders. He had reach and drive. He had a body shape that was not so common because he was actually short-backed. And we knew the blueprint, but we made some mistakes and made some assumptions along the way that we weren't prepared for. So it always has been a learning curve. What was, what was one of your favorite assumptions or mistakes? Was something that you did that now, in hindsight and retrospect, you can say, should never, please don't ever do this. <laughs> well, I have it in big, bold letters. If you own a stud dog, he is not always the best breeding for your bitch. And that, it's key, but it took a long time to figure that out. 
I see people do it all the time. Every one of you see people do it all the time. All they need to get to the top is just a good stud dog. And so it doesn't work like that. You have to know what clicks, what doesn't click, what never to breed together and what to breed together. So I think for us, that was a pivotal moment. Okay, so you just said my favorite word in dog breeding geekdom, which is what, <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's a word. Geekdom, you didn't know that? That's a word. No. <laughs> that Nick, what works and what doesn't work, I think is so unbelievably critical. I know it is in my breed. There are certain things, certain lines of dogs that are, you know, perfectly lovely in and of themselves that I will not touch with a 10 foot pole. Because that <laughs> they don't make nice with what I already have. So right. Amanda, you're up. Talk to me on that because you, I think, are going to have some very specific insight on that with your smaller gene pool. And I do want to come back, if we can, before we're done, to Chris's discussion of the breed standard kind of as a driver, encapsulating all of the different styles, because I think that is so hugely important. You know, our breeding program was always informed unfortunately, by health problems. It was shaped from day one by trying to deal with, you know, a fairly significant health issue in in our breed. So long and ever ago, when we had our first litter, we had puppies that just died, you know, before they were a year old, they collapsed and they were gone. And it was horrifying. It was difficult for the pet owners to deal with. My sister had a four-month-old puppy die in bed with her. And she was about 14 at the time. So you can imagine that that was pretty awful. We talked to other breeders about what that might be at the time. You know, maybe it was vaccines. Maybe it was something in the air and the water in Canada. Who knows? No one's ever heard of it. So just don't breed those two dogs together. Go try a different combination. So we did that and everything seemed fine. And then the progeny from that litter went down to the U.S. National Best of Winners, bred that bitch to the winner's dog, brought that puppy home and had another litter, and three out of the four puppies died. So at that moment, you kind of look around and think, okay, well, we can't be the only people that have this. We bought our dogs from someone, and it was really, at that time, probably the most prolific line available in North America. So not ones to give up. We soldiered on, and we got all new dogs, and we continued, and we still came up against this issue. And so we became firm advocates, first of all, for recognizing that it was a problem, which was an incredibly difficult battle. And we could do a whole show about that and the quest for a DNA test. But it started with first establishing that we had a problem and establishing what the problem was. And, you know, not that it's germane to this conversation, but it ended up that what we had was a form of juvenile cardiomyopathy that is particular to the Toy Manchester Terrier alone and is very similar to a sudden infant death syndrome in babies. So when we finally got the test, it was 2016. Well, our first litter was, you know, 1986. So you can imagine that we spent a lot of time trying not to produce this problem, trying to breed beautiful dogs, but also trying not to produce puppies and send them home with families thinking that they might die. You know, we just couldn't do it. It was a choice of, I can either make choices that I think are sound and safe or I cannot breed because I can't knowingly put together dogs that I think are going to produce an issue. So right from the very beginning, we were really impacted by health and trying to work around it in an age where we didn't maybe necessarily have the tools available that we do now. 
And as a result, we took on a really expansive approach to breeding to try to avoid this issue, which was a recessive trait. We tried to do breedings into lines where we knew or we suspected or we had confidence in the people we were working with when they said that they hadn't produced it. And as a result, we were able to kind of develop a bit of a line that didn't have it, but even then you don't know with confidence. So it was very much a matter of consistency in choice, choosing dogs that fit with our interpretation of the breed standard, which we're very lucky that our breed standard is actually quite elastic and does encompass a lot of different styles. And it allowed us to do that. But it did mean that we couldn't heavily line breed. We just couldn't. And so I would say that certainly for many, many years, that was the primary driver of our choices in the whelping box. And unfortunately, although I would like to say that we now have the DNA test and we don't have to worry about that anymore, there's new problems. There's new issues that we have to worry about not concentrating genes for. So at the moment, you know, it's a problem which is maybe even more difficult to deal with protein-losing diseases like lymphangiectasia and chronic kidney disease. And those are things that don't show up in dogs until they're older and well past breeding age. So then you have to be even more conscious of the fact that you hopefully don't concentrate the genes that cause those issues when you plan a breeding. My family started in clumber spaniels. I mean, understand that after World War II, there were six individual animals Mm -hmm. in the world. Six. (laughs) So the entire breed of clumber spaniels was reestablished from those six animals. And so your conversation about super small gene pools and never line breeding and some of those things, I mean, it rings very true for what my folks did for a lot of years. Well, and I have to say, I want to be really clear that I'm not trying to represent my experience Mm -hmm. as typical for even within my breed. I won't speak for any other breeders and what they've dealt with. There's certainly lots of breeders who have had success doing closer breedings. One of the things to keep in mind is that when you have a small gene pool, every breeding's kind of a close breeding. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's six degrees of separation takes on whole new meaning. We'll be happy if there's there's just three degrees of separation. Two and a half. Normal. (laughs) I appreciate you all so very much. And I know our audience does also. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, Give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk. 